I would like to invite you on a voyage, a crusade, or a quest, whatever you'd like to call it. But a journey nonetheless that began for me many years ago when I hit my own personal metaphorical iceberg. As we all navigate through these uncharted, turbulent waters, this perfect storm entrenched in such polarized shards of dark and light, I hope to use this vessel to unearth and share a few of the beings from around the globe that can hopefully offer some respite during this ambiguous time. I call these individuals the torchbearers, the stewards, or the bridge builders. And in this era of false heroism, dare I even call them the true influencers. We ask the question, who do we recruit aboard this proverbial ark? The ship that will be navigating perilously through this new and unfamiliar territory with a view to reshape and regenerate our relationship with the animal kingdom, one another, and the planet Earth. The only home we know. These are the stewards, the thinkers, and the doers. Accompany me, Rona Mitra, as we voyage onward toward the shores of our undeciphered future. On the last arc. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Last Arc with me, Rona Mitra. I would firstly like to thank everyone who has been joining me on this, this journey, this little voyage. So far, we are now on episode four and... I am going to acknowledge that we are running a couple of days behind and there's a very good reason for that. As you may or may not have noticed, the theme um, thus far has been really our connection to our relationship with the planet and our brothers and sisters on the planet, how we arrived at, um, at in this predicament, at this place in time in 2020 um looking at this virus on this precipice where our species is being given an opportunity to really address some of the many 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 i suppose we could call them issues that have arisen and have culminated and brought us to a place where we are being forced to rethink or being given the opportunity to rethink and reconsider our participation with life and the universe as we know it. And in the first three episodes, we really get into our connection or disconnect from the world and our environment and the lack of symbiosis and our, I suppose, betrayal of our brothers and sisters who we walk the planet with as um, a possible reason why uh, we have found ourselves in this situation. So in our last episode, we discussed zoonotic diseases with Paul Hilton. And so I thought it fitting that we discuss this, this virus that um, we so, we so easily villainize and, um, we forget that viruses really are a whole part of our world, our system, and an extension, an extent, an extension of ourselves in so many ways. And while obviously it has a lot of painful ramifications, how we look at it and how we reg regard it is imperative because 
it showing up for us is really, it is that opportunity for us to understand what it is that we have created and um, what our part is and how it is that we could potentially evolve through this. And while I personally would look at things from a more spiritual perspective, I I really think it's um, a wonderful thing to be able to connect with and talk to scientists and virologists and people who understand viruses and the complexities and um, really our part and our relationship with them to a much greater degree. So in my life, I've been given the opportunity through my work. Some of you may or may not be aware of um, a project that I worked on back in 2000 and around 2013-14 called The Last Ship. And on that, I was given the task of creating a vaccine to save the human race. 80% of the world's population had been struck by a global pandemic. And um, my job, although it was uh, pantomime, was to to play a virologist to create a vaccine to save the human race. And it just so happened that ironic, ironically, at the same time, the Ebola virus actually broke out. So while I was working on this... Um, I was really due to exit from the film industry around that time. I was setting about to um, create a farm and uh, grow my own food and um, sort of move away in that general direction. So when this project came along, I was intrigued because I wanted to understand how we were going to tackle the subject matter. And it took me down this path, this journey with um, this virus And um, it really embedded in me a deep understanding and a respect for viruses in general. And I had the honor of working with an incredible woman. And her name is Paula Cannon. And that's who I'm bringing on as a guest today. Paula is um, an associate professor of microbiology at the Keck School of Medicine in California. She leads a research team that studies viruses, stem cells, and gene therapy. She's originally, you'll hear it in her accent, she's from Liverpool, and um, that's where she obtained her PhD from the University of Liverpool, and she received uh, a postdoctoral training as an HIV scientist at both Oxford and Harvard University. So she is, she's the real deal. She's um she's a really lovely woman and I I I I owe so much to her because I spent pretty much 2 or 3 years really in isolation just with this virus and so of course it's just an acting job but really when you spend 2 or 3 years really getting into something and understanding it and pulling it apart you do well, hopefully you do, unless you're really there for other reasons, which I suppose people could be for their own vanity and, and I suppose, um, self-gain. But I am one of those humans who really gets right stuck into whatever the task is, and I need to understand it to a very, very deep degree. Um, that's an essential part of, of, of my work and, and who I am, no matter what I commit myself to. So, um, it's given me an understanding and I suppose uh, a respect for viruses in general, um, which has given me a different approach to to this. And when I we all understood and had to learn and are learning about 
COVID-19, I, I suppose I had a bit of a, a leg up. And we just listen to too much on the radio, I think. We don't really understand and we villainize and separate ourselves and from this red speckled dot, which we just give permission to nameless or sometimes named uh, faceless, but government bodies or otherwise, we give them permission to tell us what we should or shouldn't be doing or how we should or shouldn't be acting. So I just think this is one of the, the many cogs on this wheel. And before I take us down a different part of this rabbit hole and we start exploring and uncovering maybe some of the more spiritual um, aspects and maybe the more solution-based aspects of what this whole um, mechanism is looking like, I suppose, this bigger journey. Um, uh, I thought it important just to shine the light on this. So I'm really, I'm really grateful for the fact that I, I waited a moment, but we got Paula and it was just, I think the timing of putting this episode here with her actually works out great. And so I hope it's, I hope it's useful. Um, it's definitely a little geeky. So, um, get into that. And uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on the other side. Okay, enjoy. I am here with Ms. Paula Cannon, who is a professor of microbiology, molecular microbiology. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a big difference, I think. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And um, here we are, two English girls. I don't know why I keep on finding myself with English girls, and we're all the way over here mm -hmm. in California. And the reason why you and I met, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on my wee podcast, but you and my journey with you made probably a more profound impact on me than um, I even realized at the time. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I had to be able to spend more or less two years with mm -hmm. you at, well, I was basically feigning what it is that you do. And I, I am in complete, I bow down to your, uh, your, your work and your life's vocation and what you do. And I can only hope and, you know, the rest of us who feign these roles, playing scientists and virologists and fake heroes saving the world. It's all, you know, sort of fanning around and doing our best. But I really cared so much about the information that you shared with me on a weekly basis to pull apart and understand and dissect the genius of these viruses and, <clears throat> and how they can really, you know, get, well, they really got into my system and become, become a sort of obsession and, um, <laughs> Character, isn't it the virus is a character yeah it totally it was my that was my that was my that was my as far as I was concerned my lead romance you know for mm -hmm. two to three years maybe you can encapsulate for everybody what your what your life and day's work looks like so my day job so I'm a professor of microbiology but um I focus on viruses and from a very the beginning of my sort of scientific career I chose to focus on viruses and particularly HIV. And the reason for that was actually because my prior career, I think I shared this with you at one point, is I used to work in the music industry. 
And in the sort of late 80s, seeing the impact that had on people I knew and, and friends just motivated me to sort of go back to school, get my PhD, and actually work on HIV. So HIV was my first love, I guess, as a virologist, but I kind of like all viruses. They're intriguing little challenges to humans. And I've worked on a variety of different ones. And of course, in 2020, my lab has pivoted. And now we're also working on coronaviruses as well. That's kind of come in and sort of taken precedent on, on everything we do. But the the general principles and the things that we've learned studying HIV, not just me, but all virologists, are now uh, very nicely being applied to the challenges we're having with this coronavirus. Do you feel that all the work that yourself and other virologists have been doing um, have lent itself to this very moment? And are all or most virologists suddenly dropping everything else and saying, okay, let's put the pause on all the other work we've been doing and put all our energies. Do you feel that that's the kind of the conglomerate effort? Yeah, a lot of people are. And, and what's so actually exciting is that not only are you know, people who work on HIV or influenza or other viruses, as you say, dropping everything and just saying, in this moment, we're gonna pivot and we're gonna focus on the coronavirus. We're all doing it in a very different way. Rather than you know, kind of being in healthy competition with each other, we are like breaking down barriers, we're calling each other up, we're sharing information on Facebook feeds, we're shipping reagents that we've developed in our labs to other people so that they can save a few weeks and, and sort of hit the ground running. And there really is a sense of kind of all hands on deck. And, and what I love about it is honestly, it, it's the way I think scientists would like to work. If we didn't have our, you know, careers to worry about well you know you have to demonstrate that you alone have discovered this or that you have got this grant if we weren't you know of necessity set up in competition i think most of us would actually just much rather you know hang out with our with our fellow scientists and just swap our best ideas share broadly and just all together um you know make progress and that's kind of happening with the coronavirus it's cool do you feel a much more cohesive sense of community more than you ever have before at this particular moment in time? Yes, definitely. And what's also kind of exciting is, you know, it's not just the scientists, it's, uh, you know, biotech companies, it's governments, it's charities and foundations. It's, you know, people who wouldn't normally work on viruses are kind of coming along saying, what can I do at my own university? We've been talking to engineers or people who work on artificial intelligence who want to come and help. So I've done, I've done a lot of Zoom calls where I've done, you know, virus 101 for, you know, very smart people who have technologies I don't understand, but trying to find that interface where the virus world can be, you know, exp can be addressed through, you know, the, the eyes of an engineer or a computer scientist and see if we can come up with something novel in in that way well wow. so that's actually must be quite a lovely feeling is it global that or do you feel that's just within um, within your your the community of people that you're already yeah in contact with or do you feel the outreach is a global it, it's pretty global and 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 also i i guess i've been reflecting on the fact that scientists tend to be global anyway you know one of the 
one of the nice things we get to do in our work is we, we go to scientific conferences in different countries where there's people from all over the world. So, you know, my, my friends, my virology friends, the people I have like, you know, Zoom calls on a Friday night with a cocktail, they're in different countries um, or they come from different countries. And we all have these kind of layers of connections. I mean, again, I just look at my Facebook friends and they're virologists from all over the world. So we do that anyway. Again, it, it's, it's a privilege of, of the work we do. So it's, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, connect at that level for something like coronavirus. I'm slightly jealous. I want to join in on your cocktail evenings with, with other virologists, just geeking out and figuring out ways to unlock the, 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 uh, the kingdom of this, you know, curious labyrinth that everybody's trying to navigate through. And, you know, this, do you feel and have you felt through your life with viruses, you know, I think that I do feel lucky that I, Look, I never just showed up on my mark and said the lines. I oh, take no. <laughs> you, you you had to kind of get inside the head of the of, of the virus, and uh, it actually, you know, I, I just I compliment you for that because it was it was such fun, sort of teaching you about viruses, walking you through so that you could then not only make sense of the script but actually kind of critique the, the script if necessary. And, you know, you and I, as you know, we, we were in this sort of partnership because it was so important to me that what you did would pass the tests of other virologists watching it. And, and of course, you know, it's a TV show. Things are compressed in time and there's, there's a certain amount of things that are somewhat unrealistic. But I wanted, you know, other virologists watching you to be like, oh, she knows how to use that machine. She can use the pipettes accurately. Um, so that as, as much as we could, it, it had authenticity. And I think you understanding the reasons for the equipment, for the process, what it involved, it allowed you to make sense of the, you know, of necessity kind of um, shortened version that does get presented in a TV show. So credit to you. Oh, no, my gosh, that's so lovely to hear that. I'm, it's, it's really because I, I, I pay credit to, to you and your peers and it's an absolute duty and obligation that um, I, I get that right and I'm not just faking it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just, it's just pantomime. And you know how much I cared so very much about the narrative of what we were discussing, which is that viruses are not a new, they're not a, they're not a joke and they're not to be taken lightly. And people dedicate their lives to this work really to create solutions to help others. It's an incredible act of, uh, I don't want to say sacrifice, but there's a commitment involved, which yeah. I, what I realized through that, there's quite a lot of isolation. You know, you, while I know you're discussing the relationships now that you're having, which must be lovely to share stuff with other virologists, yeah. but I had one or two people who were characters that I spoke to and you become impassioned about that thing. So how, how is it then connecting with the outside community, with people who don't understand the, what the inner sanctum is engaged with every day? And also, do you feel a pressure and responsibility to the outside community that everything, it, everything rides on you and your peers to develop the cure, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah, 
So, so I think different scientists have a different view. You know, some people are very, you know, in their own bubble and, and that's, you know, where they want to be. For me, I've always thought it was really important to kind of connect broadly with, you know, everything from my family and friends, you know, who are converts <laughs> to, you know, I, I speak to a lot of journalists. I do a lot of press. I, I don't have to be in front of the camera. I, I love to educate journalists so that that one line they write is, is accurate or they know the questions to ask. And to me, that's just part of being a scientist and a professor is that, you know, I want to communicate and I want to you know, talk to people. And, and I feel now more than any other time when, you know, unfortunately we're seeing people being confused about scientists or public health officials and the information they're giving. We're, we're having people say, oh, you know, there's fake news out there or it's confusing or it's changed. Mm. It's made me realize that um, we need to do some work to uh, get people to trust us again. And some of that work is actually about educating people about the scientific process. You know, normally you don't see all the uh, changing hypotheses, new information coming at us like a fire hose, but that's the reality of being a scientist. You know, you're, you're open to new ideas, new information, and to change your mind, mm. not only is that not unusual, that's absolutely what a good scientist does and i'm and i'm realizing that maybe some people in the general public don't understand that and they see that as a weakness you know hey wait a minute you said this in april but now in july you're saying something different and i'm like yeah because mm. we've got new information mm. don't you want us to change what we tell you based on new information so I, i'm struggling to understand why that is that's seen as a weakness by some people or a reason not to trust us it's a patchwork isn't it Paula. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And you just you just have to be open to what you think might not be correct. But in even in your failures, you, you learn something from it. You're like, okay, you know, it wasn't that, but oh, here's a new idea we can now test. So that's just, you know, that's how science happens. And it's it's really frustrating most of the time. You know, you work so hard. It's not, it's not like cooking. You know, you put all this effort in and you don't get a cake at the end of it. You put all this effort in and you're and you're like, oh, that didn't work. That was a dead end. Let's start again. So it, it takes a certain personality, I think, to be able to handle it, actually, because there's a lot of disappointment, frankly. With that very ability to be transparent and fallible is mm. something that the human, the, the, the human nature has a real problem with. They want this flawless perfect line of solution 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 this is this is your either from the government you know as we're seeing with politicians if you sh if you showing vulnerability is an interesting one but actually they, people don't like setbacks people don't like setbacks in the process because it unnerves them and yes. they want, and they want you to be superhuman and this is also a big problem that we have with i suppose shows that have gone before this which have in movies and whatever that can desensitize Joe public by feeling that scientists are superheroes who are going to go out there and magically fix something. And yes, we see all the drama around it, but it's, it's somebody else's job. And while we're living in this state of fear, which the planet is, unfortunately, most people, nobody wants to hear that, that this process is a process. Yeah. And so, I really, to, to, to bring back the characteristics of what a virus is, 
the genesis of a virus, what specifically also defines and separates COVID-19 in the umbrella of a, a coronavirus itself? And how it is that, say from the Spanish flu back in, when was that, 1918? <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. Um, we seem to be in a similar place in as far as employing the same mandate, you know, face coverings, <laughs> washing your hands, and, and what we do to create a vaccine and why these viruses exist. Like, what is this? If we were going to put it, them both as a, as a kind of a, a battle between two entities, the human race and the virus, who, mm -hmm. is, who is the virus? What is, what is our war with them? And sure. is, is that too opaque? No, but let's start with, let, let, let me unpack some of what you said. So okay, I, I, think, I think the first thing I'd, I'd um, tell you is that all animals, all species, including humans, live with viruses. And typically the viruses we live with, because they've been with us for a long time, they've kind of evolved to coexist with us. If you had a virus that just killed everybody it infected, it wouldn't get, you know, it would eventually become extinct because we would become extinct. So there's always an evolution towards kind of getting along and living together. When we see diseases and new viruses, it's always because a virus that's living quite happily in an animal makes the leap into humans. So in influenza, influenza comes from birds, typically water birds. The, this coronavirus um, came from bats. Um, and so they were probably quite, you know, bats have hundreds of different types of coronaviruses that live in them. And most of them, you know, probably don't cause any disease in the bats. But this one coronavirus for COVID-19 made the leap into humans. And just randomly, almost by pure chance, that virus happened to be able to also infect humans. You know, normally there are these barriers between different species and a virus can't jump over but this one bat virus got into one you know unlucky person in that cave and then again it was just almost serendipity that 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 virus was able to you know replicate inside a human and then if that wasn't bad enough the thing that's really bad about this virus and all coronaviruses is the way that they are transmitted they're not transmitted through blood they're not transmitted, you know, through sex or anything that we could kind of maybe get a handle on. They're transmitted through the air. So this makes it really challenging because um, it's very hard to stop a respiratory infection. It's, it's no coincidence that our last big pandemic was the 1918 influenza, another respiratory pathogen, because it's really hard. You know, first of all, you have to keep breathing but it's hard to completely minimize your exposure to these viruses. So um, it's kind of a bummer that it spreads in this way because they are the, the most difficult viruses for us to protect ourselves against. Um, the other thing I'll say is that the reason that, you know, people say to me, why, why this virus? Why is it, you know, causing a pandemic? And that's, that's due to the fact that it's spread through aerosols but it's also because nobody on the planet has ever been infected with this coronavirus before or anything that's close enough like it that we have any pre-existing immunity. 
So normally, you know, when a new virus comes along, for example, a new strain of influenza, sure, we get it, but it's often not so dissimilar to other strains of influenza that people can have some sort of pre-existing immunity. So it's not going to infect everybody. This coronavirus is brand new. Nobody has any immunity. And that's why it's, it's just going like wildfire through the population. So basically, two, two bad things. It's spread through, you know, through air and, and, and respiration. And we have no pre-existing immunity. So there is nothing to stop it. So with the, and you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, mm -hmm. because it's my pedestrian, my knowledge. It, with the 1918 influenza, that was far more lethal. It just wasn't yeah. as contagious. So while it killed more people, yeah. the, the amount of people that actually contract or are contracting or still will contract the, the COVID-19 virus will likely be more, but with less fatalities than the, the 1918, from what I read. Yeah. And yeah. That's good. So, yeah, so 1918 influenza was unusual in that um, the people who got it and who, and who died from it were young people you know, sort of people in their 20s. And older people who are normally more vulnerable to infections, they didn't get it. And that was because the 1918 influenza was somewhat similar to other influenzas that had, you know, gone through the population, you know, 50, 60, 70 years previously. So anybody who was that age already had some built-in immunity against the sort of, you know, first cousin of 1918 influenza that had happened back in the, in the 19th century. So they had resistance. So again, with that virus, although it was a new virus, not everybody in the population was susceptible and older people were actually pretty resistant to it. It was also, it's also a flu virus and they are very seasonal. You know, people don't get flu in June. People get flu, you know, in the fall and the winter. Um, and th so this coronavirus seems to be different in that way. It doesn't seem to be seasonal at all. I mean, it's, you know, here we are in July and it's going like that. So um, it's different from flu in that way as well. Well, the, the, one of the main things with this also, the, I mean, the influence of what I've looked into the virus in, in 1918 is that people could die within 24 hours. The symptoms were horrific. I mean, really, it's like something you would see out of a film compared to the subtlety, let's just say. Even though I think that with, with this COVID-19 virus, it seems that this broad spectrum of asymptomatic versus the kind of the extreme symptoms yeah. are so varied on the spectrum that by the very fact that you can be carrying it and pass it on um, makes it incredibly brilliant in that yeah, way. That, 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 that's a really good point. And that, that again is one of its, um, you know, sort of superpowers, if you like, that um, you can be both pre-symptomatic, meaning, you know, it's 24 hours before you yourself are going to show symptoms, but highly infectious. Yeah. And you can, of course, also have the virus and be pretty much asymptomatic and still be infectious. Mm. So that creates a huge problem. I mean, we can think back to so the, the closest relative of, of this coronavirus would be the SARS virus, which was also a coronavirus that caused... Um, you know, a worldwide outbreak in 2003. And SARS freaked everybody out. I don't know if you remember that. We really thought we were going to have this global pandemic. And it had a fatality rate, you know, that was much higher, you know, approaching 30%. Mm. So everybody was terrified of this virus. Mm. 
But the good thing about SARS was you were only infectious when you had symptoms. And boy, if you had symptoms, you were sick. So it wasn't like people would be kind of walking around with like a slight sore throat and infecting everybody. People were bedridden and in hospitals. And so it was very easy to identify who had SARS and then isolate them and do barrier nursing. And in that way, SARS patients didn't infect other people. So within a few months of, of the outbreak, I think ultimately there was less than 8,000 people actually died from SARS because it was, it was so easy to identify and contain. So you see the problem we've got with this new coronavirus because it's stealthy, because it can be spread and can infect other people without the person knowing they are infected. It just really creates this huge challenge. And therefore, the only way you can stop people infecting other people is literally to say, everybody stays six feet apart and everybody wear a mask and limit you know, the number of people you're in contact with, which of course is, is, is the advice we're giving people. And that's really hard for everybody to do in the population as we're seeing. Well, it seems to be hard. What, what, what's, what's interesting to watch is every country and every culture responds to it, obviously guided by whichever government and what the messaging is. But what, what's interesting about the different cultures and how they've taken this on and how they've responded to it. I've seen when you look at whether it's Italy or you look at cultures that really revolve much more around community mindfulness, where grandmothers live in the house with their grandchildren and there is more of that old school respect for, you know, the whole community. The psychology where people, which is, you know, being, we touched on this before, the cognitive dissonance, which is, it's not really my, it's not really how it interweaves into my cultural belief system or comfort zone. I need to, I want to carry on boating or going to a nightclub or seeing my friends in a bar and I'm young and I'm healthy and I take vitamin C. So therefore I'm a superhero, um, is going to get certain states, countries into a lot more trouble. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, you're touching on also the kind of the concept of, I guess, American exceptionalism, which on a personal level plays out with, I'm not going to get it. And I don't care. I don't care about other people. I mean, that's, that's the only way I look at it. It blows my mind how extraordinarily, I'll use the word, there's no better word for it, selfish people are. And that this has now become a thing and that their right to not wear a face mask <sighs> Yeah, yeah. What is it that's up for us, really? When we're talking about selfishness, what is it the undercurrent of what we are contributing as a species by the way that we take care of each other and actually value our own lives and our brothers and sisters' lives, our our communities' lives? And so, if we're if we're displaying that we really don't care, then. I mean, if the virus had a personality, quite frankly, and if it was wearing, you know, Zorro eye shields and had a cape, I would say, you know what, you lot probably deserve to go because you're not being very nice to each other. You don't seem like you really want to hang around <laughs> because I know the virus only cares to keep you alive. And that's the other thing. It's the virus isn't Machiavellian, is that the virus needs, needs us alive in order to be a perfect host. So really, we're our own worst enemies 
really, if we want to take this on, the best way we can do it is actually by taking that our superpower is being self is being selfless, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, and and it's actually you know, maybe some of it. It just comes down to the simplicity that because this isn't something you can see and touch, and even if you don't personally know anybody who's had COVID. You know, it does require a certain mental gymnastics to kind of believe and accept this. So, so completely decent people who would run into a burning building to save a stranger because that's something, you know, it's a danger they can see will argue with me that they shouldn't wear a face mask because they don't see the danger because the risk in their mind is, is tiny and they therefore kind of can't make sense of it. And I suppose as a scientist, I'm, I'm comfortable with the concepts of uncertainty and risk and, and all these kind of you know, things that you can't hold in your hand and think about. And so to me, it's a very simple decision to, because there is a non-zero risk, I could be infected at any time, I will always wear a face mask. And because there is a non-zero risk that I will encounter somebody who's infected, I will always wear a face mask and end of discussion. Um, so I think the hard things is, is for people to kind of, you know, wrap their head around something that is kind of invisible and is not a certainty and, and live in that horrible kind of uncanny, you know, world of, of uncertainty. It hurts your brain sometimes to do that. But you go up against quite a lot of people you, you, in, 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 who have that, I don't know if it's a, whether you call it a belief system or a sort of an in, ingrained indignance, which yeah. is, is it a, is it a, is it a, is it a cocktail of arrogance and ignorance? Do you think? <laughs> you know, I think, it, I think the underlying um, basis of it is fear um, because uncertainty creates fear and, and, and different people deal with uncertainty differently. You know, um, I think, you know, again, because I'm trained as a scientist, it's baked into my DNA that the, you know, the world is uncertain and I can live with that. And sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. Living through this current coronavirus pandemic, you know, I have a lot of information and I still feel profoundly sad on occasion. And I still feel extremely angry on occasion at the situation we're all in and what we're, have to, what we're having to live through. And I would love it all to go away but that doesn't translate into behavior that's going to make it worse. And, and then, you know, I talk to people and I, and I really think what's underlying their behavior is, is, is sort of fear. And it's fear and anxiety around uncertainty and not being in control. Something that, you know, I think we all <laughs> sort of struggle with on some level anyway. But, oh, my God, people, when I'm, when I'm like engaging with my trolls on Facebook or whatever, if I say to them, you know, I actually... I feel sympathy for you. I really do. This is not me, you know, uh, pretending. I feel sympathy for you because I see between the lines of what you're writing to me, abusive as it is, I see your fear. I would like to help you. Um, I, I haven't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah, but I think also the one you said, which is control. We, you know, we, we do live in a world where convenience and control are part of what our need and greed desire yeah. to yeah. exist. And so, yes, the, I think the undercurrent is for most of us anyway, I mean, myself included, when I find myself going down a psychological rabbit hole or feel my heels digging in, 
it's a little it's a little three-year-old you know that's <laughs> yes and it's it's a it's a brilliant thing to be able to look at yourself objectively and go you're acting out now and what is at the root cause of this and it's fear and it's losing control yeah so but, do you go but, you know the one you said that was interesting there was the the convenience and the sort of inconvenience because you're right we are we are we have such convenient lives don't we and we're so used to this is what I want this is what I get and this virus has come along and it is the mother of all inconvenience with all the things it's taken away from us and all the things that we are required to do and there's no end in sight so on a very mundane level the, the massive inconvenience and, and I don't mean to trivialize it you know people are losing jobs it's more than just inconvenient but that also kind of strikes at us as well. And that, that's the other thing that makes us all just very uncomfortable in this situation. Well, we're in completely unfamiliar territory. There's no script that's gone before this. There's no blueprint. There's no mandate. There's no guidelines. And I think it's been proven that there was no preparation for this. Nobody knows their ass from their elbows. And so the analogy that I use is that the, this this orphanage of ours has been abandoned by the foster parents and we've been left to run the house together a bit and yeah. so with with all the with all of us together like talking with you and other there are other brilliant people who you know when we all muck in together and figure out where we're at and what what it is our part is why is it and how is it in 2020 when we kind of knew the writing was on the wall, we had lots of signs. We've had these other zoonotic diseases. We've had MERS and SARS. And why is it that we knew that this was coming? It wasn't, it wasn't, it was a when, not an if. How did we get caught with our pants down like this? Because um, people don't accept that it's a when, not an if. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very struck by, uh, you know, kind of leaders who've been kind of talking about this. I feel like it's not, it's not in human nature. And therefore, to spend the money to prepare us for these things requires the type of leader. It, it requires political leaders with bravery. And quite frankly, they don't get elected. So, you know, the question would be, should we divert some of our treasure and resources to prepare for this, you know, this uh, event that we can't predict. I, I look back, so so let, let's talk a little bit about vaccines right now, because here's a good story. I was going uh, to say. <laughs> yeah, I've just, I've just remembered, I went, this is a really good example of this. So again, I was telling you back in 2003, when we got the first SARS virus, there was a huge you know, outpouring of money and scientists were asked to try and develop vaccines and start to develop drugs against SARS. That was when we thought SARS was, was gonna you know, go through the whole world. And then SARS didn't. So guess what happened to all that funding and all that interest, it went away. Um, so we don't to this day have a licensed vaccine against SARS because SARS went away. But the good news is that when this new coronavirus emerged, the scientists who'd been working on SARS, and there's another one called MERS, which is closely related, mm -hmm. you know, they were like, oh, <laughs> let me get in the freezer. You know, they opened up their freezers, they pulled out all the work they'd been doing previously on, on these viruses, and they were able to very quickly swap out, you know, the piece of SARS and pop in the piece of, of COVID-19. And so we have made so much progress in such an incredibly short period of time towards getting 
a vaccine. You know, the one that Oxford University, for example, has been uh, has been working on. That is because they've done all this work previously on SARS and MERS, and they could then apply it to this. So, in an ideal world, the funding that went into SARS would have been maintained. Uh, you know, governments and leaders would have said, "Hey, you know, we dodged a bullet with this first virus. Another one is going to be coming. Let's just." you know, get all these things in place, let's develop some drugs. So we've got something, you know, in our medicine cabinet, when this happens again, money went away. I guess we're kind of regretting that decision roundabout now. So that was a, that was an obvious oversight. That wasn't, I mean, that was an oversight. That was an opportunity that could have been run with. And if, if the funding had continued, we'd probably be in better shape and tens of thousands of lives would be, would have been, And and I hope going forward that, um, you know, we're going to look at this current coronavirus. And remember, I was telling you it came from bats and bats have hundreds of these coronaviruses. And so, you know, virologists can look at the information about these other bat viruses and we, we can be like, holy crap, there are literally tens, if not hundreds of similar viruses that look like they could also infect humans. So we really need to now be trying to develop drugs that act broadly against, um, you know, all the coronaviruses or at least, you know, a large group of them. We need to be developing vaccines that can protect not just against this coronavirus, but any others that might come out of the bat population. And we need to just be thinking, um, I think, as we develop drugs and vaccines about also having these broadly acting drugs and vaccines that can protect us against the viruses that are the when, but not if, of the future, you know, that we don't know what they're going to be. We're talking about working on prevention, which is... is well, um, not so much prevention. Oh, no, not necessarily prevention, prevention, sorry, but being prepared. Yes. Preparation, yeah. sorry. Preparation. Preparation. Yeah. Sorry, what, what I would, what, what, the other spoke to this wheel, which I don't know if you heard, I had the, it was, a, I spoke to a, an incredible man who spends a lot of his time and energy and efforts working on the front line in wet markets in China and um, uncovering the relationship between zoonotic diseases and our consumption of animals. Right. And so, there is a direct correlation and um, it's not just with uh, exotics. It's as we saw with um, swine flu and MERS and this, it, our relationship with the animal kingdom needs to be looked at. Would, I mean, I don't know whether or not you want to weigh in on that as a scientist or not, or whether or not you have any personal feelings, but there is on the bigger picture, there is, a real relationship issue that we have to look with with that. So if we're talking about a prevention, that is one, that is one area that we could look at. Absolutely. And you know, uh, you know, you don't even have to be somebody who cares about animals or how we treat animals. You don't even, you don't have to be a vegetarian. You don't, you don't even have to have that sort of um, sensibility to understand that, you know, these viruses come out of animal populations and there are certain things that human practices and our farming practices do that encourage that. A very, um, very simple example would be, for example, we know that a lot of the um, swine flus or influenzas and the potential for them can be exacerbated when you have farming situations where you have, for example, ducks um, that are sort of on the, in the same area as pigs 
because waterfowl often carry the influenza, the initial influenza, and if they then pass it to pigs, pigs are what we call a sort of a mixing vessel. That that oftentimes the the virus, the influenza virus in the waterfowl can't directly infect humans. It's we're, we're too different. But if that virus goes through pigs, pigs can kind of mix it up and and evolve it and create a form of the influenza that by chance can then infect humans. So if ducks and pigs are never kept together in a situation where that can happen, the chances of that happen, you know, become, become tiny compared to what's happening now. So some of the sort of farming practices that have allowed that to happen are being looked at. And, and also, as you know, we're, we're, a lot of surveillance happens um, in markets, but also just in areas where there's, you know, mass production of animals for food and, and especially in, in sort of ducks and chickens and, when we first detect any outbreaks of potential new types of influenza, you'll see these reports of massive culling of chickens or ducks, especially in, in sort of China or Hong Kong. So there's things we can do based on our knowledge of where these viruses come from to reduce the risk of the next sort of pandemic. But even then, there's going to be things that sort of, you know, slip under the radar. We can't, we can't guarantee we'll catch everything. Of course, but if you're talking about lessening chances, and if we're talking about this mass, you know, especially factory farms, and it's this is not just China, Paula. Yeah. This, this is on our every this is on every doorstep. It's Australia, UK, yeah. South America, America. I mean, it's all across the board. Do you think that being just completely just Real common sense and logic. Do you think that if human beings en masse mindfully looked at where their food sources came from, in other words, more monitored forms and methods of farming, um, that it would lessen the chances of these viruses spreading? Yes. Yes, undoubtedly. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, that as, you can say that as a scientist. I don't, I would imagine you're not vegan for some reason. I don't know why I don't. I'm, veget I'm, I'm veggie vegan-ish, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, it's a convenience thing more than any, well, my daughter's vegetarian. So yeah, and it's, uh, I, I feel more and more people are going that way and, and we mustn't punish people for not being perfect vegetarians. But I, I just know in my own circle of friends, um, you know, concerns about viruses, but frankly, concerns about just the impact that animal farming has on the environment, you know, and again, we see this in California in spades, don't we? And the impact it has on climate change, that to me has, has really motivated me. And now I'm much more mindful about reducing the amount of meat I consume. But my, my I'd say my motivation is more about realizing the impact it has on our climate rather than necessarily a fear of viruses but um i'll take both i'm so glad to hear you say that paula i didn't know we've never i don't think we've ever had that chat but you know that's my you know that's where that's that's my well i it's where i i like to sort of sound yeah. a little bit of a horn is steering people towards that but not not berating them for it just steering people and and, and it's good to hear it from somebody who's got a scientific background. What I would love to get into with you is um, this vaccine. Yeah. Now, when you, and, when you and I went through this, because 
Uh, you know where I, I stand on the very cautious side of vaccines due to a personal journey that I had that we don't need to get into now. What is it that, what is it that a vaccine exactly is doing when it is going into our bodies? What are we creating? Because I understand that targeting the pathogen is the goal and identifying the pathogen. You're gonna to have to correct me on all of this because obviously- Okay, I'm, I'm, notes. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the twerp. I am, I've got my notes. I'm geeking out here big time. Um, and then explain if you wouldn't mind the what it is that goes into the making of the vaccine and the different phases. So I know that every vaccine has different ingredients, but is there a, is there a kind of a common cocktail? Yeah, okay. All right, well, let, let's start off by understanding what happens in a natural infection, because you get infected with a virus, and most of the time it doesn't kill you. Most of the time you recover. And you recover because your immune system um, mounts an attack on that virus. And your immune system is all about um, specificity. It, it make, your immune system responds by making something that's tailor-made for that virus. And typically we have two types of weapons. First of all, we make something called antibodies. These float around in your blood and they're like little molecules that, that are exquisitely precise and bind to the outside of a virus and they kind of coat it. And a virus that has been coated with antibodies is now dead. It can't get into a new cell. It's like it's been kind of you know, put in a bag and, and tied up. So antibodies are a really important part of our immune response against viruses. And then we also make what's called a cell response. Sometimes it's called a T cell response. And here we have T cells, which are like kind of um, you know, soldiers. And what they do is they patrol the body. And if they find any cells in the body that are currently infected with the virus and are making new viruses, those T cells will, will kill those virus infected cells. So between mopping up any virus that's floating around with your antibodies and wiping out the currently infected cells that could be making new viruses by your T cells, we have these two arms of the immune system that eventually get the upper hand on a viral infection and wipe it out. So the whole goal of a um, vaccine is to kind of trick the body into thinking it's under attack by a virus so that the body makes antibodies and T cells that could also kill the virus, um, but, it does, but, but, the, but they're doing it in response to a vaccine. And what's good about that is if we trigger the same type of immune response through our vaccine that a natural viral infection does, the good thing about immune responses is usually they last for life. You will always have those antibodies, you will always have those T cells ready so that if you ever encounter that virus again, that you know they they go they go at it straight away and you don't get infected. Mm -hmm. So does that does that make sense about virus immune response and then how a vaccine vaccines in general are kind of mimicking um, want to create that immune response in the absence of an infection? Yes. Okay. So then there's different ways to do this. There's different ways to mimic a virus infection. So one of the simplest is, for example, you could take a virus, let, let's, let's, let's use measles and ah, we can use our coronavirus. You can take the virus, you can kill it, you, know, you can heat it up, you can chemically inactivate it, and you can basically make a dead virus that can't infect people. But if you inject that dead virus into people, it's still 
to the body's immune system looks like a virus. The body doesn't realize it's dead. So the body makes the antibodies and the T cells thinking it's under attack and it's not. So we can have a dead virus. Um, sometimes we can, another type of vaccine we can have is what's called an attenuated virus vaccine. And there a virus is taken that's, um, it's modified to be not capable of causing a full-blown infection. It causes like a little mini infection. But if you inject that attenuated virus into people, it won't cause an infection, although sometimes it might cause like a bit of a headache or a fever for a day because there's a little tiny bit of the virus in your body, but it's a sick, weakened virus and the immune system easily wipes it out, makes the immune response that's going to be protective. And, and that virus you know, goes away very quickly and doesn't cause a disease. And then the other main type are what we could call subunit vaccines. So you know the cartoon everybody sees of the coronavirus? It's got these red spikes on the outside. I don't know why they're red. I don't believe the it virus looks is like, It looks like those things, they think they call them luge balls and you see them oh, yeah. that you can yeah. get in and throw yourself down a mountain in one. Yes, yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Okay, so like the spikes on the outside, it's, it's, it's literally called the spike protein of the virus. That allows the virus to bind to and enter a new cell so that it can you know, keep being infected. What you can do is you can take just that spike, the little red blob, mm. and that can be manufactured by itself. Mm. And, and then you can inject just that spike into people. So what happens in the body is the body's not been injected with any full virus. It's just getting that little piece from the outside. Mm -hmm. But the body's immune system will make antibodies that recognize the spike. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is, of course, that those antibodies would also cross-react with and recognize the spike protein on the outside of a real virus should you be infected. So that's another different way that you can um, make a vaccine. And then in 2020, where we are now, there, there's even more kind of options on the menu. Um, we have things called RNA vaccines. Um, it's a company called Moderna that has been uh, reporting results from its clinical trials recently. And what they do is they go back even one step further. And rather than giving people sort of the already manufactured spike protein, they give people a little piece of RNA, which is genetic information that can make the spike protein. So if that is injected into you know, one of your muscles, your, your muscles for a short period of time will take that RNA information and will start to actually synthesize in the body some spike protein. And so again, it's just a way of getting the spike protein in your body so that your body can respond and make antibodies that recognize the spike protein so that if you then get infected with the coronavirus, those antibodies are all already there, ready to kind of corral the virus and stop it. So these, you just described four different, is that four, four different? I did dead, I did attenuated, I did spike protein subunits, and I did the RNA vaccine that can make the spike protein. Okay. Yeah. So all the superhero virologists around the world right now are all working in and around those four modalities. Is that what we'd call I don't know, what would you? And, and there's, and, and more. And in fact, maybe the last one I should tell you about, because this is also in the news, is there are vaccines that are based on sort of making hybrid viruses. So Oxford University has one. And there's also a company, CanSino, in China that has one as well. 
And what they've done is they've taken a virus that normally causes a common cold, it's called an adenovirus, and they've taken out some piece, pieces of the adenovirus so that it's, it's, it's very, very weak, so it wouldn't even give you a cold. And then they've added in the information for the coronavirus spike protein. And so these, which are called viral vector vaccines, um, when those are injected in, into somebody, what they do is, again, it's, it's, a, it's like they make a very small infection. They're very weak. And at the same time, they're producing and churning out a lot of this spike protein. And because the spike protein isn't just made in isolation, it's made in the context of the rest of this virus being in a cell. What that does is that really really freaks out the immune system. The immune system is like, whoa, I've got this weird alien spike protein that I need to make antibodies against. But I'm also getting all these alarm bells telling me there is a real virus infection in my body. So it's a way to kind of maximize the immune response against the spike protein. So it's a little bit complicated. Um, but those are, those are the main types. And, and again, the reason that we're hearing so much about the, at least this week, about the Oxford University vaccine, which is based on a adenovirus vector, is because it, they literally took the one they had been developing for SARS and MERS, and they took that and they swapped out the spike protein from SARS and put in the spike protein for the coronavirus. They'd already done all these safety trials They'd already done some studies in animals to see if it was effective. So they, could, they weren't starting on, you know, step one. They were starting on step, you know, 10. Um, and that's why it's gone so quickly. That was going to be a, a question which everybody is concerned about on the vaccine development front, which is the time frame in which a vaccine, a safe vaccine can actually be created. And yes. that's obviously a really big concern for a lot of people with the rush that goes with it. So yes. there's this like who's winning on a daily basis and all that. But then knowing that this, a lot of the legwork was done previously, as you're saying, that we, we were or certain bodies were several steps ahead anyway. Yes. Is that, so, so in effect, just as far as the phase testing, would we already have been maybe kind of phase two down the line already or like how far into it? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. So again, normally when you make a vaccine, um, you go kind of step by step and it takes a long time and it costs a lot of money. And because many vaccines will end up, you know, not, not being good enough at the end, it's, it's a risky investment. So they take time because nobody wants to put a lot of money in until, you know, each step has been kind of checked off. Because we don't care about that right now, we don't care about money, we care about time. What we're able to do is a lot of the development of vaccines, it's the different steps rather than sort of going sequentially, some of them are going simultaneously. So the safety studies are still all getting done. It's just that they're being done simultaneously. And um, that makes it super risky, but only in terms of money. You know, instead of spending a million dollars to develop a vaccine, you know, at step one and, and finding it fails, it, you know, it doesn't make a protective immune response and you've only lost a million dollars. Governments and biotech companies and charitable foundations are saying, here you go, have a hundred million dollars. 
do all of these studies that you would normally do sequentially, do them as, you know, compress the time frame as much as you can. And of course, it's, it's super risky in terms of money, because if it fails at any of those steps, you've lost 100 million instead of 1 million. But it's absolutely the, the only way we can speed up the process. So, so distress, it's not taking shortcuts in terms of safety. All the safety studies are being done, but it is taking shortcuts in terms of, instead of it being a linear process, it becomes this sort of simultaneous process. And luckily, again, charities and governments and biotech and scientists and everybody is, is, is piling in and saying, how can I help? And you know, we've got the resources to do it. So it's not a race but I'm glad it is, you know, it reflects the fact that everybody is, is trying to do things as quickly as possible while still being as safe as possible. And what's exciting is everybody's sharing their information straight away. You know, normally this wouldn't happen. Normally, you know, Oxford University working with AstraZeneca would be like, yeah, let's, let's keep this under wraps until we've, you know, gone up a little bit further. We don't want to let our competitors know what we're doing. We don't want to get out ahead of ourselves. But no, everybody is sharing information as soon as they get it. And again, this, this comes back to what we talked about right at the beginning, that maybe that's a little difficult for the general public to understand, you know, hey, wh why are they in this race? Why are they putting out this information? Why are they saying something when they only did 40 people? Why are they saying something when they only did 1000 people? It's, it's because of this decision we've all made as, as the sort of scientific and pharmaceutical and biotech communities that we're going to share everything as quickly as we can because then that's going to help one or more people to kind of get to the finish line and have a safe and effective vaccine as soon as possible because that's, that's what we need. I trust you and I trust everything within the, within the scientific community in as far as where everybody's moral compass lies on that. What concerns me, and I know is a big concern for a lot of people, are the agenda of big pharmaceutical companies and people who are investing on a very high level, I'm not gonna mention names, and their agenda to come in first um, with the price point and the mandate or mandatory you know, mm -hmm. vaccination um, orders that, are go, are gonna, that could potentially go into place. Right. And why should we trust that? And how do we trust that? And do you feel being, or, or, or can you say that there, that you, there is an agenda for that on a financial level to be the first to come out the gate and to monetize that? I mean, as it's seen in the past, this isn't a new, this isn't a revelation. Sure, but I would say pushing back again, that is, you know, this transparency we're seeing and the fact that even, you know, remember I said there's different types of vaccines. What's astonishing to me is for each of those main groups, there are multiple, you know, university labs, companies, governments, all developing, you know, their own version of it. So nobody's going to be able to hide what works and what doesn't when there are so many people independently working on this. So we may, we may, let, let's, let's make up a situation we may find in a couple of months that, wow, the adenoviral vector vaccines look great, but oh my goodness, the RNA vaccines look better. You know, it's going to be impossible to hide that information. And then if you are the US government or any government, 
and you're the person who's in charge of buying and procuring and um, distributing vaccines, you then have to make those decisions and justify them in the face of known information. And it's not just going to come from this country, it's going to come from multiple companies, the UK, Germany, India's doing a lot, China's doing a lot. So there's, there's going to end up being consensus about what's what works. And, and I think we'll have multiple different vaccines that are actually good enough that we could start using. And, and, and that's going to be important as well, because just the scale of manufacturing enough doses for everybody in you know, undeveloped as well as developed countries is, is Herculean. So we need these options so that we can you know, build scale and capacity as, as quickly as possible. So normally I'm as cynical as you about this, um, but in this case, I think the transparency that's being foisted on the effort, the cross-team collaboration, the cross-country collaboration that's happening is going to guard against that. I hope so. I would like to believe that. Um, the free-for-all that comes once a vaccine, whether it's for HPV or whether it's for measles or whether it's for whooping cough, who approves beyond the FDA? Does, does every vaccine company and manufacturer, once it's sort of out the gate, how is it monitored and approved? And the ingredients and the quantity of ingredients. And if you can sort of maybe share with people what are, what goes into a vaccine? Because you look on, you know, you look and see what's on these lists. There's a whole cocktail of stuff, which, you know, obviously is not going to be good for a lot of people's systems. So the monitoring of that and the amounts of that and the okay. tracing of that. Talk to me a little bit about that, Paula. So that's not my area of expertise. So certainly vaccines have to be approved by the FDA and then the sort of quality control of vaccines. It's like any drug, you know, it's, it's monitored by whatever the government regulatory agency is. It's not in the interests of most companies who are selling a vaccine to not have something that's, uh, you know, high quality and reproducible. And, and that goes for any sort of drug that company would be out of business very quickly. I also think that vaccines are not quite the gangbuster profit-making drug that people think they are. Not only does it take a long time normally and a lot of money to develop a vaccine, there is a risk of litigation. Even if you have a vaccine that is perfect and you know, causes absolutely no side effects ever, your risk of litigation in the current climate is high. So, you know, there's a lot of business decisions that get made not to make a vaccine. Not in the US. It's very hard to, hard to sue a vaccine company, almost impossible. Sure, but I would also and say there are disincentives to making vaccines. And, um, and so some of the work of making vaccines has been taken on by charities and foundations. Um, again, the Gates Foundation are a sort of a standout example of that, putting money into HIV vaccination, Ebola vaccination. And some of it also is um, just the, um, it's hard to make a new vaccine against a virus that is only infecting a small number of people in a different country. I mean, we saw this with Ebola, you know, where's the profit margin in that as well? So, you know, this is just recognizing we live in a capitalistic society. Mm. Um, but I think with this coronavirus, you know, there's gonna be options and 
different countries will do what they think is right for their own population. Mm. Um, you know, you, you see countries like India stepping up and going, okay, yep, five or six different types of vaccines. We've also got biotech. We know how to do it. We're going to start doing this ourselves because we want to have something for our population and not have to wait in line behind, you know, the US or, or Europe or whoever else, you know, more traditionally has access uh, to these types of medicines. And Absolutely. Yeah, I, I see that. But then it comes back into question, which is, does the government actually really care for the welfare of its people? And so I think there's a kind of, as with um, a lot of drug companies as well, is that while it can be looking to possibly quell one thing uh, for one person, it has negative ramifications with a list of adverse effects in other departments, which just makes it very, it makes it a very sort of what for, 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 for the, for the whole general conversation around a bit of a Russian roulette, because we're all, there is no one, one, one size fits all. And, and I looked up a little bit with your HIV studies and what I saw you, you interested in why it is that some drugs work for one person versus another. We're all individuals. We're not bots, you know, so there is an individual response neurologically and also across the board. We are, we have been affected and infected in, and I, I, I think it dates back to, and I could be way off base here, but since the industrial revolution, our systems as human beings, as we were made all equally, biologically the same, we've been inundated with a various, various different, whether it be mycotoxins or otherwise, our systems have been bombarded with various different things that really we've had to respond to individually, depending on the environments we grew up in, whether you're next to grew up next to in, in next to a, a, a coal mine, or, um, or it could have been, you know, huge amounts of mercury, mercury fillings that your mum had, or eating a huge amount of tuna when you were a kid. Like we've all got different tipping points as to how much, how many heavy heavy metals we have in our system, uh, the buildup from BPA's, environmental pollutants. We are navigating through a mire of chemical warfare as brilliant beings, extraordinarily, exquisitely complex, fantastic creatures. But our systems haven't evolved to defend ourselves against these very new and very dangerous and subtle um, combatants. And so every person, case by case, is made up, is, has got a different sort of support system. Yeah. But that's also why, you know, you, you have to, you do these escalating clinical trials that, you know, you, you do 50 people and everybody's okay. You do a thousand people. Great. Everybody's okay. There will always be some things with any drug and any vaccine that when you do a million people, you'll find some people who have this reaction. It's almost impossible to predict unless you do these, you know, very large numbers of people. So I feel very personally and very strongly that I love myself enough not to put myself through coronavirus, but I also love the people around me enough to not, you know, to do everything I can to minimize their risk of getting it as well. I love that you say that. Thank you. You're wonderful. You're a human, you're, <laughs> you're a human being, you know. I am. We all are. And if you just remember that, have your behavior guided by your humanity everything else falls into place and the mask that's just a symbol of our common humanity as well absolutely and i i do i 
do think that that's the reason why America's on the naughty step a little bit longer than everybody else is because that takes humility, it takes thoughtfulness, it takes selflessness. And apparently those are not qualities that, you know, run through the veins. And maybe it's going to take a minute longer and, and some harsher lessons because I, I think that you would agree that America opened up too early and it's going to be one of its greatest mistakes, I think, um, across the board. And we're going to have to learn some hard lessons here. So unless we do that very simple thing, which you're talking about, which is cover your face <laughs> with a mask and uh, be, be mindful and loving yourself enough. My gosh, maybe that's actually the crux of it all, Paula, mm -hmm. is that people don't love themselves enough. Can I just... Can I ask you one thing? Like when we, well, we did this show together and you know that I was, it was really important to me to, to try to create a vaccine which was spread in the most loving way possible, which is I can't believe we actually pulled it off, but um, we created a huggable cure, didn't we? Mm-hmm. And that was, that's, that's a viable thing, isn't it? It is. Um, it's not just, we didn't just, we didn't just fluff that. Right? While it was lovely to see everybody curing each other by hugging each other, but that's, that's, that is a possible way to spread the cure if we, we had to make that real. Yes, that, so the idea of having a virus that can, a vaccine that can be sort of transmitted, it's still, it's still fiction though because it's really what you worry about is that your virus could mutate to be worse so so right now polio virus the, the, the vaccine for that actually does that naturally the, the vaccine you're given for polio is one of these attenuated viruses so it causes like mini polio which allows your body to mount a really good immune response against it but sometimes that sort of attenuated polio mutates and reverts and can actually then infect other people. You classically see this in uh, daycare centers where you know, babies have been vaccinated. Uh, the polio virus is transmitted through oral fecal. So daycare workers changing a diaper on a baby can get infected with this attenuated polio and if it's mutated, it can actually cause an illness in the daycare workers. Super rare, but not unheard of. So because we know that, I'm always cautious about the idea of, you know, being able to make a, a vaccine that was a transmissible vaccine that behaved itself. Because one thing I've learned is that viruses and biology and nature always do what we don't expect. And they will find a way to kind of, you know, circumvent our best plans so I so I don't see that in the future but it was it was a great storyline oh it, well I'm going to wish for it I'm going to I'm going to wish for that that actually the reverse of this seeing as we haven't been allowed to hug each other for so long that, yeah. it's not, that at some point oh go on Paula come up with the one where we if we cuddle each other <laughs> we make each other better yeah. something good but that's what mushrooms do you know when you ingest psilocybin or other mushrooms the spores actually the healing properties i don't know if you've studied any of paul stamets's work oh. but oh you'd like him he, he <laughs> i'll send you some of his his studies on uh, the intelligence of mycelium um but that's how you spread the intelligence is actually it comes out of your pores and so it would be amazing to create a a, a vaccine through mushrooms and mm -hmm. 
to be able to ingest them and then hug it out. That's what I'm going for. You and you and Paul Stamets need to get together and 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 work that out. Um, nothing you, else we can make a good pizza out of it. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're nothing wrong with that. Paula, it's been so lovely reconnecting with you. Thank you so much for being here. And um, I wish I wish I could join your virology club. I have to say. I'm, I, 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 at any point, if you need uh, an assistant, you know I can slap on that hazmat suit. And you, yeah, and you can use pipettes. I do remember that. Yes, you could be pretty good at that. Probably better than some of the people who work for me. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. I'll just let you guys do the animal, animal testing stuff. I'll do the rest of it and make cups of tea in between. <laughs> But Paula, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, man, I wish you the greatest of Godspeed and, and luck with everything. And thank you for being human because I know this isn't easy either. It's, it's a tough time for you all to go through and, and probably, probably quite an emotional one as well. So I send you, I send you a really big hug through the screen. <laughs> you too. <laughs> All right. All right. Love Lots of love to you. Bye bye. Major virus overload conversation with the lovely Paula Cannon. And if you can believe it, there was actually 35 minutes more to that chat, which I had to painstakingly slice and splice myself or it would have gone on and on and on which actually there was such a wealth of information in there it was it was kind of wonderful but there's kind of only so much that we can really absorb but um I hope that it was useful and while it's not my I don't know if I'd say my preferred avenue of choice you know if I had my druthers I would create a cure where we could all get in the cuddle puddle and snuffle it out no ultimately we have to do the work and um we have to find you know many of our own personal um i think this is about each of us finding our own personal roots through this but um it's definitely an imperative part of the the conversation that we are inclusive and we um discuss all aspects um, that are integral to this 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 whole conversation in general, um, because there is nothing that can be excluded, and everything is relevant and everything has its place. So um, I'm really I'm really glad that we got to to chat about that and bring that to the table. And if you um, enjoyed that chat, wherever you listen to it, whether it's on Acast or Apple or Spotify, if you would like to review it or if you would like to subscribe um it's actually that would be really wonderful i would be very grateful and um i would also just like to say that i have my compadre who is ben robertson who painstakingly sews this together on the other end for me and i wouldn't be able to do this without him and so massive thanks to ben who's over in london who is just my the c3po to my r2d2 if that makes sense 
and if you want to follow me on I am Rona Mitra on Instagram and also the last little arg you can find out any updates of upcoming episodes and you can leave comments and questions and all that kind of stuff but until next week I look forward to connecting with you then and um, I hope you all take care of each other and you take care of yourselves I send you so much love and be safe Thank you.